to you, everyone here this evening. As Jacob often reminds us, uh, the ability to come together and, and be together again to open God's word is a blessing. And I hope we all think of it that way. And I know it is for, for our family. And uh, it's important. It's important that we get together as often as we can to find opportunities, not uh, trying to diminish, but to try to build each other up and to continue our studies in the Word of God. Tonight, I want us to look at a common referenced contradiction of the Bible. This is part of a broader uh, series I'm, I'm working on, and, and over the next few months I hope to bring about common understood miscons or common reference misconceptions in the Bible. But some people would say, you know what, we don't, we don't need to worry about that. You know, those are, those are world contradictions, and it's, it's not what we believe. And, and so why should we spend any time thinking about or looking at that? And I would have to disagree. There's not a whole lot of debates in our society that are happening right now, um, especially debates in the church like they used to. But if I had to reference the most uh, common ones that I've seen over the last couple of decades, they've either been centered around this, this doctrine of AD 70, and that's something we need to look at because it's growing in popularity. Um, it's been around the apologetics of creation and versus this atheistic view of evolution and uniformitarianism. Now, thirdly, um, it's been about contradictions. And, and oftentimes, the contradictions are intertwined in the other two, but definitely around the whole idea of evolution and uniformitarianism. And so I do believe that it is important for us to reflect on and consider what others are saying and ourselves getting in the Word of God, determining what truth is, and making sure that we... We have nothing to be ashamed of or to hide from. Um, I read an article by um, Eric Loins, um, and in that article, he captured the essence of this discussion. Why does the opposing side against the Bible look so hard to find contradictions? And the answer, if we've all been looking around, is quite evident. If they can find a contradiction, they can find how to take apart our faith. Because if the Bible's in, not infallible, then we have a real problem on our hands. And as we went through Genesis and Exodus, we often stopped and referred to or referenced a variety of contradictions. I think these two books are probably the most attacked in the entire Bible about contradictions, because if they can break down the foundation, then they've won. And if we look at our society, and if we look at what's happening, this is no different than what the other side has been trying to do, the side of Satan, from the beginning. Discredit God and get us not looking at God. A Christian should be awestruck by God's eternality. We should tremble at the thought of his omnipotence. Paul did in Romans eleven thirty three. 
Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. See, we should also humbly bow before him who knows our every thought, as David recognized. Psalm 139, 6 reads, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. On the other side of this, as finite beings, we recognize that we will never be able to fully grasp the wonders of God or the thoughts of God. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, we're told, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And yet, we should rejoice and be thankful that God chose to reveal certain things to us about himself so that we can come to know as much as humanly possible the attributes of God. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And in 1 Corinthians, this thought continues in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep, deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So often this passage is misused, misquoted, and misreferenced to be something more than or in addition to the word of God. We know that's not the case, but we should appreciate that we have been revealed certain things from God and we can know those. And so what exactly is revealed? Well, First is God is love. First John 4, 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That God is logical. That is 1 Corinthians 14, 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saint. Furthermore, God is just. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And finally, that God is worthy of all praise, honor, and obedience. We see in Psalms 18.3, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. In Matthew chapter 10, 38 and 39, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. So in summary, God is everything that his inspired word reveals that he is. And this is why man has sought so diligently to destroy the word of God from the beginning. This evening, we're just going to look at one of these alleged contradictions. 
since we have laid the foundation, again, we will come back and look at some more, but for time's sake, we're just gonna look at this idea, this contradiction that is often referenced, and that is that we are tested by God, but we're not tempted. And so where do the world go when they're trying to make an argument that God is a square circle? That doesn't make any sense. But what they're trying to say, oftentimes when you will hear this logic being uh, portrayed, is that God is a logical contradiction. And so one of the ones they often, they, they love this one, is James 1, verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now that is very clear for all to understand. There is no question, there is no doubt that the Bible states God tempts no one. And then people run all the way back to Genesis 22 and verse 1, and they bring out that King James Bible version, and they quote the following passage. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. And now they profess, I've got you. You are believing in this Bible, and I am showing you that it's a logical contradiction that God cannot tempt. It says it clearly in James 1.13, but then you go to Genesis 22.1, and they whip out the King James Version, and they say, it says that he tempted Abraham. What are you going to do about that? Now, I know all of us here know the answer to this question, but it's important for us to review it. And the reason I believe it's important for us to review is because this past Sunday, as you all know, we were traveling back from the Grand Canyon, and we stopped in Amarillo, Texas. And this question of tempted and tested was put forth in the Bible study. And for nearly 15 minutes, we listened to a discussion. And what was interesting is no one questioned James 1.13. Everyone understood that God does not tempt mankind. The 15 minutes was around the idea of testing. And I heard every explanation under the sun that included one explanation of at home, a guy said, I would put a gun on a table. And because my kids are not interested in guns and they're understanding that this is a, a test, that them not grabbing the gun, that's a test. But if I put a jar of candy, then that would be a temptation because they would actually want that. And someone raised their hands and said, well, I loved Westerns as I was a kid. That would be a pretty big temptation. And so this made it very clear to me the importance of answering even the contradictions that are proposed before us. It really matters if we use the Bible or our own human logic. 
because we heard every bit of 10 explanations, maybe more, from both men and women that gave their opinions about what the difference is between tempting and testing. And they talked to themselves in circles and one gentleman even had a serious question at the end. Well, then did God tempt Adam and Eve in the garden? Because the fruit was desirable. It was pleasant to look at as Satan tells us and we're gonna revisit that in just a moment. But the importance is if there is presented to us a contradiction or if someone has a question, it is extraordinarily important to answer that. We go back to the word of God. We use that as our guide and as our tool to work through anything that is put before us. And so why did I make a big um, to do that they whip out their King James Version Bible? Um, it's because this word nissa, Hebrew word, that's what's translated in Genesis 22.1 by the King James writers as tempted. But there are a few other translations that have come along the way. And every single one of those does not tempt or does not use the word tempt as the translation for the Hebrew word. They instead say in the New King James tested in the American Standard Version to prove and in the ESV it says um, tested. And so what is going on? Well, first, let me suggest, it works in this case to reference, sorry, you don't have that. It works in this case to reference some other translations, but as you guys know, I'm, I'm not generally a big fan of using different translations of a Bible to help us understand what a word is. It, it sometimes works, but sometimes it does not. In a similar way, I would suggest that going to a concordance and finding that exact word and looking at the usual library of things that it means isn't always the best course of action because more times than not, what I find people doing is pulling out the list and running through and figuring out which one they like and then forcing that word to mean something in that context that it, it doesn't mean, but it justifies themselves usually. And besides a lexicon, I would recommend that a good source to go through is the Bible itself. Where else is this word used and how can I better understand what it may mean? One of those cases is the word um, that is, again, translated Nisa in 1 Samuel 17, 39. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. We all remember that this is David trying on King Saul's armor. It was bulky, did not fit him. He's a little boy. King Saul is a, a man still, and this is before the battle of Goliath. But the point here is the word tested is the same word that is used in 22.1. And as I've often said, that a lot of times the Hebrew and the Greek is more specific than the English language. That is a general rule, but is not always the case. Both in the Hebrew and as we're going to see in the Greek, this one word can mean tested. It can mean to try. 
and it can mean to tempt. The context will actually define which three of these it means. And so that's an important tool to use. And obviously, he is not tempting Saul's armor on himself. He is testing, will it fit? Does it fit? And so with that basis, it's important to understand that words that are used in the Bible, we need to understand in the context what is being said. So how do we wrestle with this idea of tempt versus test? And why are we even tested by God in the first place? And that's what we're going to look at this evening. There we go. Sorry. We jumped forward. So I want to first wrap up this discussion with Abraham. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. In Hebrews eleven seventeen, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Here, the King James writer gets it right. They use the word tried. Um, some use tested. But many people forget what's happening to Abraham. When God gives this command to Abraham to offer up Isaac, was it something that was going to happen immediately? No. It says that he had to take a three-day journey. Furthermore, does Abraham know God's opinion about murdering or God's opinion about offering human sacrifices in a form of worship at this time? Without a doubt. Let me ask you this further. Had Abraham proved every time he was tested by God that he would choose the right answer? Ishmael is one example. How about Sarah and his wife when they entered countries? Did he proclaim him, her as his wife and that God would take care of what he needed to take care of so that they would be protected? No. But it's important to know that when he receives this test. After all that he had been through, after all the references we read in Hebrews in our Bible study, this time he follows God's commands. This test, he adheres to God. And that gets to the root of what we're going to look at here this evening. It goes to the root of what was read for us. Remember James 1.13? God tempts no one. Let's go back and look at what Joseph read for us. In James chapter 1 and verse 2 through 4, as James is introducing the epistle, he doesn't jump to verse 13, throw that at the beginning, that God tempts no one. He first lays out what God does do. And he lays out why God does this. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. 
but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Does that describe the life of Abraham that we read about? He shows tremendous face when he's told to pack up everything, leave and go to a place, and oh, by the way, I'm not even telling you where you're going. And then he stumbles along the way at various other tests that are put out there before him. And then God gives him the promise that he finds out well after he left his homeland. He finally gets the promise. And God tests him again for the exact reason we read in James 1, verses 2 through 4. But also note that the same Greek word used in Hebrews eleven seventeen for tested, and I had not picked this up. That word in Hebrews eleven seventeen for tested is the exact same Greek word used in James 1, 13 when it is translated tempted. And so words don't, the, the definition and the translation of words matter. And if someone is taking the position that God is a logical contradiction or that the Bible is not truth, then we can see we, that, that they have a problem. And we're going to continue to highlight the problem because this is not the only example we have in scriptures of God testing mankind. And we're going to see the clear distinction between when Satan is involved and is tempting us to sin. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the examples. So hopefully if you're ever approached with this, then you will be able to give an answer um, for, for the question. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2, we read, And you shall remember the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. This is after the 40 years. This is after all that had left Egypt had passed. Moses still had to pass. We know Josh, uh, Caleb and Joshua are the only two that are going to be able to enter. But Moses is reminding them, Remember the Lord your God. And what were the 40 years in the wilderness for? What happened to send them to the 40 years? They were already at this position once before. They had gone through the sea. They had been at Mount Sinai. They had said, don't let God speak to me or we will surely die. But it was that those 10 spies that did not rely on God and the culmination of that being the 10th transgression since they left Egypt and God says, none of you shall enter. Was it humbling? Yes. Were there tests even during this time period? I would, I think so. Let's go to, um, well, first let's do one more passage while this is happening, so if we back up Deuteronomy's at the end, let's go back to Exodus 20, 20, because this will tie the two together. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear 
may be before you so that you may not sin. So God is testing them for the ultimate goal to humble them and that they would keep his commandments so they would not sin. We further see this in Exodus 16 and 14. And this involves the manna. So in Exodus 16, 14, the Lord, Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will bring bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Is God using testing in the exact same way as the wilderness? Is he using the idea of testing in the exact same way with Abraham? Why did God give them a quota to take up every day? Why did God on Friday before the Sabbath give them a different quota? And why on the Sabbath could they not collect anything? God wanted to test them. For what purpose? Will they walk in my law or not? What happened when that occurred? On all three of those questions, did people obey? There were some on all three of those conditions that broke it immediately after they were given. God wanted to see if they would walk in their law or not. Deuteronomy 8 verse 16. Moses is recapping the wilderness. They're preparing to go into the land of Canaan. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna? Which your fathers did not know. Look at the wording. That he may humble you. What did it say about the whole wilderness journey? Humility. And that he might test you. So the purpose that you would fail. No. To do, to do you good in the end. What did James 1, 2 through 4 tell us that testing is for? Is it not to do us good in the end? God is not tempting us. He is testing us to humble us and so that it would be good for us in the end that we would obey his commandments and that we would not be lost. So think about this when we think about the Garden of Eden. This is not a jar of candy that some of us in this room would be tempted to attack or a gun it was, was the example that others in this room may be tempted. That's, that's not the question of testing or temptation. Because if it was, the garden gives us some challenges. Let's notice the actions of Satan. We've seen the actions of God in setting before us a test for the purpose of our good in humility and to keep the commandments. But notice Satan. This is a great compare and contrast between what's a temptation and what is a test. Now, before Satan approaches Eve in Genesis chapter 3, did she understand God's command? Yes. There was one tree. There is one fruit. 
that you cannot take in. Now, what is Satan doing as he approaches her? Let's read in verses uh, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you will not eat of every tree of the garden? Even Satan knows. Satan quotes exactly what God had told them. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, Satan, then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Is that, what is Satan referencing there? A physical death or the spiritual death that God was referencing? Or the fact that they're still, they don't even know that they would. <laughs> There's no indication that this whole death thing is even present in the garden. Satan is twisting, as we all know. For God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. And this is where the confusion happened in the class. When we're not defining what a test is by God's words, this to an individual who admittedly afterwards talked to, new in the faith, was confused. Because why isn't this like a jar of candy? Or why isn't it like an object that I want? It was desirable. It wasn't a rotten tree that looked horrible and the fruit looked disgusting. Our kids would say, broccoli. They don't want to touch that. No, it was desirable. She admits it that it was pleasant. Satan tempted Eve. Not God. But God did place the tree in the garden. For the same reason as He gave the commands to the children of Israel, regards to the manna that He provided them, and for the same reasons when He asked Abraham to offer up Isaac, would you keep His commandments? His law. There's an example given to us by God where he told a prophet in Jeremiah to bring wine into the house of the Lord and tell the Rechabites to drink it. First, we must recognize that this could have been grape juice. We, we don't know uh, exactly. It's the general term, but, but wine was prohibited to be brought into the temple. Alcoholic wine was prohibited to be brought into the, the temple of God. But that's not the main point of this passage, and we've discussed the generalities of alcohol in the past. But let's read from Jeremiah 35, because God is making a point. This point wasn't what not to do or to do. It was a test for these groups of individuals whose father 
had a laundry list of things that they were not to do. They were not to have vineyards. They were to live in tents. They were not to have grape juice. They were not to have alcoholic wine. And this generation that lived was being tested by God through the prophet. Would they hold to their father's list of covenants that they had agreed to, or would they not? They do uphold, and they remain faithful to the covenant that their father had made and that they had agreed to continue on. And this is the point that God is making. This is the point of the test. Starting in verse 12, Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words? Says the Lord, The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine are performed for this day. They drink none and obey their father's commandments. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. I have also sent you to all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now every one from his evil ways, amend your doings, and do not go after the other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers. But you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the sons of Rechab, had performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. He's highlighting the faithfulness of this man's children to the fact that Israel was not obeying him. That is the point of a test and the difference to be referenced as temptation. But I hope we can rest assured that even though we are tested by God, we have been given a promise that God will not allow Satan to tempt us more than we are able to bear. So this is a very important point. We are going to be tested. God is very clear of that. And we will conclude with James 1 one more time for making sure we clearly understand the purpose of those tests. But just like it's a guarantee that we will be tested, we will be tempted. The temptation comes from Satan, not God. The tests come from God. But Job taught us an important lesson. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is an assurance to us that was received by Job at the time of his temptations by Satan. And that is, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We can have hope. We have focused that God is not the author of any temptation tonight. That doesn't mean we're not going to be tempted. 
But we have a promise. And that promise is for everyone. If we fall into temptation, it's because we did not remain faithful to God's word. And God has said, just like we see play out in Job, that he is not going to allow a temptation to overcome us that we are not able to bear. But as we conclude, just one more time, I think James 1, 2 through 4 is a very nice summary to all the examples we've been given, and there are more about God testing. And we are, brethren, going to be tested by God. James 1, 2 through 4 states, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Abraham was tested on multiple occasions. We saw that some he succeeded in, some he failed in. But did not Abraham, throughout all of those tests, grow? Did he not learn? And when the test come, came, where he had to take a three-day journey, pre-pack all his supplies, he gets to the bottom of the place he was told to be. And he tells his servants to wait. But he says, we will return. He and his son. Does testing accomplish what James 1, 2 through 4 tells us? Absolutely. Is there a contradiction in the scriptures? Absolutely not. We can rest assured that there's an explanation if we will slow down, we'll turn to God's word, and we will use that as our basis to answer any question. Thank you for your attention this evening. We offer the invitation song. If there's any need, please come forward as we stand and sing.